Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good to be back with you again. Appreciate that. Uh, we've been watching, and I'm sure you've been observing over the last couple of weeks, as more state legislatures either take up or confirm the anti-BDS legislation that many of us would love to see everybody uh, you know, hop aboard. Um, yesterday, a hearing in New York City, I know, I know that we don't always discuss local issues, etc., but, but why do you think yesterday's hearings in New York, New York City specifically, were so contentious and had so much opposition when we see anti-BDS legislation sail through certain bodies of government in this country? Uh, well, uh, just for your audience's edification, there is a resolution before the city council against BDS. It doesn't have real legislative impact, but it is certainly very important as a message and supports the, the actions of the governor and puts New York City on record, as it should be, against this discriminatory uh, practice. And the there were announcements made of the hearing. Uh, we, the conference presidents, was invited, and our chairman, uh, the head of the Lawfare Project, both testified there, but hardly got a sentence out before they were interrupted. It was really a horrific scene that here in New York, uh, you cannot speak out in support of Israel without having the kind of harassment and uh, and threats, so much so that they had to be escorted to their cars by the police to leave the city council chambers in New York. And the police did a great job with them and handled it well. They, they had to twice evacuate the, the council chambers uh, of the guests and the people who were there. I, I hardly would call them guests. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, some come from within our own community. And, and I think it was because it was publicized and that they knew that this would get visibility uh, that they uh, took these actions. California last week passed BDS legislation, and you did not have this kind of disruption. Uh, and I think the same was true for New Jersey and most of the other places. There are always people who object, there are people who threaten lawsuits, etc. Uh, but it tells you, and as uh, Steve Greenberg, the chairman of the conference, said at the hearing, putting aside his prepared remarks, he said, now I understand what our kids go through every day on campuses in America. Yeah, yeah good and point. We, good and, point. We are, and what we are seeing, by the way, Nahum, is a sharp increase in the physical violence in physical expressions of various kinds, not just violence, um, that the BDS movement itself did not succeed. It's not having an economic impoint, uh, impact that's very great. But that's not their purpose. Their purpose, is because the economic impact, if it's effective, would be greatest on Palestinians working in Israel who are losing jobs and uh, being deprived of a, of, of a livelihood because of it. And they're the ones who come to us to, to fight the, the BDS movement. The, the, um, the impact, the purpose is, of course, to delegitimize Israel and to, to use this as a vehicle, uh, as they did in, against apartheid South Africa. And, of course, we all know the analogy is not, is not a relevant one. So the, the, the escalation, I think, is an expression of some of the frustration that they're feeling, but I think it's, it's a warning, and we are, and others are taking precautions, working on the campuses, trying to assure that we are ready the, and working with a lot of the organizations who are on campus to make sure that every Jewish student feels safe. The Lawfare Project will provide legal services. We will 
reach out to administrations where they are not taking proper action. And unfortunately, there are too many where presidents, universities, or university deans and other administrators have not stood up and acted against perpetrators as they should have. So if one would again go back to my original question and ask why in New York City specifically uh, it happened this way as opposed to in so many other areas of the country, as you pointed out, uh, the answer sounds like they were simply, there was a a, a better, or there was an, I shouldn't say better, there was an organized effort by right. and by BDS by pro BDS people to use this forum to use this uh, arena to to make their point and disrupt as much as possible and, and we have a larger collection of these nuts in New York and uh, of these kind of forces and, but again because there was advance notice because right. everything here is visible and they know that they can get media coverage right. and you know what someone said to me this morning they said um, well at least now we know what our neighbors really think about Israel and I said you know. Maybe there is a silver lining, because you've pointed out that sometimes it's good to know, you know the truth about what the enemy is thinking. But, but it's not our neighbors, and they don't represent a significant uh, percentage, neither in the city council, outside the city council, the citizens of New York, the citizens of New York State, or of America. Every poll shows that that's the case. And the vast majority of the members of the city council, of course, one would expect that a Charles Barron type will speak up against it, and as he did, but... The vast majority of the city council will, I'm sure, support the, the measure, and so will the people of New York, as they did the governor's uh, executive order and the New Jersey legislation, and and similarly in many other places. Yeah, um, I'm having I, I'm I'm having difficulty understanding how Moscow now has become the power broker when it comes to Middle East negotiations. We know the United States' role, obviously, historically. Uh, we know we're familiar with the EU and France specifically recently and uh, some of the countries who've been involved in trying to be the broker of these talks. What happens? Putin, to his advantage or to make a point to other countries, specifically the U.S., I would guess, and other European, and, and European countries, simply sends out an invitation knowing that both Netanyahu and Abbas will agree to it, that it's in their best interests to attend some type of summit. Could you, could you give us the analysis from all three perspectives, why Russia would, would issue an invitation like this, why Israel would accept, and why the PA representative would accept? Well, if you were a regular listener to the Nachum Siegel show on Friday morning, <laughs> you would have known that uh, this is not a surprising development because it's something, uh, as you do know, I've talked about for a long time about the increasing role that Russia was playing, filling the vacuum left by the United States and the West right. in the region as a whole. And I will tell you that I had three meetings this week with uh, Arab leaders uh, here in New York, and they, they, like everyone else you meet, express the same um, sentiment, and we saw it, what happened at the G20 meeting, even the treatment of uh, the disgraceful treatment of the president by by the Chinese not putting up uh, the steps to his aircraft, let right. alone a red carpet, etc. Uh, th- there is a marginalization of the United States, and Putin, who sits on top of an economy the size of Italy's and without oil the size of Holland, I think. Uh, who is extended in Syria. You see now his operations out of Iran, the base in Iran. Uh, You see the leaders of Turkey, Iran, um, Azerbaijan, other countries who do not want to be in his sphere, who do not want to go into his open arms, uh, are doing so because, as they told me from at least two of those countries, we're being driven there 
because the United States beats up on our friends, we make demands on them, with, and as, as we did with Egypt, you know, about the Muslim Brotherhood, or with Aliyev about human rights and other issues, which are legitimate issues. But the sense is that, that uh, Putin stands by his friends, and the United States and the West are, are, are absent. Right. And the, whether it's true or not, it's the, certainly the perception that exists. And Russia is eating our lunch every day. They are moving into every venue. And he cleverly leverages his position. I mean, he has spent a small fraction of what we spend in Syria. He, but he's made ten times more from arms sales because of it. <coughs> and he, he moves in wherever he sees the United States in a situation of friction with a country. He comes in to the Egyptians and says, we'll sell you the weapons. If, if, uh, or, if, or if you're feeling isolated, we'll be there. And this is true of countries that broke away from the when the former Soviet Union, who certainly don't want to go back under the umbrella, even if it's not, you know, formally merged into another country, but right. again, back into a Soviet Union. But they, they cherish their independence, and yet they feel the necessity. And, you know, they're feeling pressure from every side, from Turkey, from, from uh, Iran, all the expansionist movements, the caliphate building them, uh, Al-Qaeda, even though people dismiss it, it's a mistake, the, the um, Wahhabis, there are so many pressures, and they feel very much alone. So in this case, uh, I'm not sure that the meeting in Moscow will take place. I would have very serious doubts about it. The, the, there's no clear date. There's no clear agenda. It's a, a ploy, I think. The French, as you know, are in the process now of trying to convene. The, I think during the General Assembly they'll convene a meeting with experts, and they're going to try and convene the heads of state. I don't think Israel will go. I don't know if the Palestinians will go, except they know that the French well, uh, they, field they, is a much more hospitable one to them. But they've already declared that they're going to go to the one in Moscow. Am I right, the PA? Well, no, they. it's less than a clear declaration that they're going to go. He said that he accepted, but Abbas will set preconditions. Maybe oh, said he'll true. go right. if there are that's no true. preconditions. That's true, right. That's good point. And, right. you know, he has developed a relationship right. uh, with Putin. And I remember Putin told me many years ago, maybe 20 years ago almost, he said, you know, I told, uh, no, it was less than that. Uh, uh, I met him the first time in 1998 when he was head of the KGB, and he said many interesting things. But when he became, uh, when he was prime minister in the early second, third year, he said to me, I told Arafat that if you attack Israel, you attack Russia. I have a million citizens there, and I, my job is to protect them. So while he certainly hasn't manifest that in every decision that he's made, but you know there is a, an understanding, for instance, in Syria. It's not a, a common agreement, as some people have said. It's an understanding that, when you, that they don't interfere with each other, Israel having the right to, to take action to protect its borders, and the Russians flying around there to do what it wants to do and uh, bombing uh, very widely. And there have been many developments in that regard, too, that we should uh, discuss. Is the, um, when, when Netanyahu accepts this invitation or says he's ready to go, is that a slap in the face to the U.S.? I mean, more so maybe to you know, the French and the Europeans because of their more immediate role at, the, at, the, at this point. But what about, what about the U.S.? Is it... Is it a slap in the face to President Obama when he goes ahead and publicly says he's ready to accept Putin's invitation? He said he's open to any meaningful invitation. Uh, when President Sisi of Egypt uh, put it forward, he said yes, because he has to show, and he has shown, that Israel's always ready to accept any serious invitation 
to talk. And if he would say, I have hesitations, or I think the United States should do it, then the whole world would say, oh, you see, that's, that's, uh, Israel doesn't want to engage in the discussion. So he responds and said, look, we're open to it. You have a serious proposal. I'm ready to come to Moscow. He was ready to go to Cairo. He was ready to meet with him anywhere, and he said, I've been waiting for seven years uh, for, this, uh, for this to happen. Maybe Abbas is looking at it and saying, oh, I remember my old KGB days. <laughs> now that he's been accused of being a member of the KGB and a, a Soviet spy in Syria and right. <laughs> other things, which should not be as surprising as people find it. If you remember, in, in the 60s, the PLO was, was a subsidi- a wholly owned subsidiary of, of the Russians. I mean, they were the ones who were funding it, manipulating it, controlling it, and he did his doctorate in Moscow, hmm. if you remember, on Holocaust denial. So it's not for, so far-fetched. Uh, so it's not so far-fetched, actually. That's right. If you, mm. you put it in context, then you realize right. that there is a, 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 you know, a strong likelihood that, that that kind of relationship could have existed. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Don't forget Sunday, Matis uh, does a live show between 7 and 9 a.m. called JM Sunday, or by Dove Lippman, one-time member of Knesset, will be his guest. We'll be on at 2 p.m. Eastern Time from the Drew Lasco Supermarket, the kosher marketplace in uh, Evanston, Illinois. We'll be there in Chicago. Can't wait to come and see our friends in Chicago this coming uh, Sunday. Um, I- I'm having, um, uh, I shouldn't say difficulty, because that would be, <laughs> that would be bad. I- I'm, I'm trying to follow... Uh, the the situation with ISIS and uh, all these articles I'm reading, including some that you posted on the Daily Alert about them losing territory and therefore ISIS um, fighters, potential terrorists, are now uh, being farmed out or end up in other countries, European countries, etc. First of all, what does it mean that ISIS is losing control over certain areas of land. What, what, what does that mean? Who, who is fighting them and taking over those areas? This is a very important uh, question, uh, Nachum, because, again, it doesn't get much coverage, and that's why we try to highlight it uh, in the Daily Alert that people see uh, an issue, as you know, I'm talking about for many years, and it, the, the significance and the potential threat is so underestimated of the returning... Uh, fighters, fighters, foreign fighters who are in Syria, and there are tens of thousands, we estimate 30,000 still uh, uh, associated with ISIS. And ISIS, as you remember, when they took Raqqa and they took other areas in Syria, brought in more and more fighters. That They were recruiting, I don't know, another thousand a month, uh, according to some estimates, even until recently, until now. They, and they would deploy them in the different areas, let's say like Raqqa, as the bombings uh, have escalated and targeting ISIS by the Russians, by the Iranians, by the, the, some of the rebel groups, the, and the Syrian army for sure, uh, they, uh, they have been losing and, re- and retrenching from territory both in Syria and in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So they need to do something with these uh, foreign fighters. They don't have the area to deploy them. And so that they, they have been going back 
to their home countries. And remember, they carry European passports. There may be, I don't know, 8,000 or more from, from Europe, probably much more. We know at least 1,500 from France. You know, Britain, 800, uh, maybe more. And they estimate that maybe half of those from Britain have returned. Now, remember, they're coming back now radicalized, trained, armed, and uh, they sneak in through the borders. And then once you're in Europe, you go f- across all the borders. And the question is how much, tra- how much they can uh, track them. You, you need many people to assign, as the French uh, minister told me, that you need 10 people to watch each one of them. And they don't have 15,000 people just to uh, uh, assign from it. So, uh, you know, it, the, the uh, ISIS still claims that in 2016, for those who, who think that they've been greatly diminished, they claimed 730 suicide attacks. In, in Iraq, Syria, and, and Libya. So they are very active, 81 in August alone. And of these, uh, about half were in Iraq, and, and, and about half were vehicle-borne, and the rest were suicide belts. So they are very active, uh, and now you're going to have the de- redeployment of these trained terrorists and, and people who have actually killed in the field to go back to Europe to carry out attacks into they don't have to do it immediately they can do six months three months but we will see the consequences talk about terrorism not having an address or or, or portable terrorists i mean this is uh, exactly right it's it they, they they are mobile armies they don't need infrastructure they don't need tanks you know so it's you know it, it it's it, almost impossible to predict where uh you know they will show up the next time. And each individual country, including the ones you mentioned in Europe where they're moving freely between them, needs its own intelligence service and security forces in order to deal with this. I mean, And coordination between them, that if somebody is sighted, that they cross borders and that they be identified uh, as doing so, and, and that people, uh, you know, that the, uh, the computerization of information... That was part of the problem in Charlie Hebdo and other time, other places in the in the Brussels bombing that information wasn't shared and and, and or taken seriously enough as it was shared. That guy, you know, the guy who carried out Charlie Hebdo, remember he was living openly in his community in Malenbeck for for a long period of time. Uh, so if the United States is, I don't know, you, you could describe to us the the difficulty, the level of difficulty of of, of one of these guys getting into the U.S. Is it much much easier in the European countries? Is it are, are they you know you've always spoken about the NYPD and obviously American security forces in terms of getting you know through these borders? Is it much much easier for them to do it in Europe? It is easier in Europe because you can, as the immigrants, you can sneak in with them, and many are, and and and, and admit that they are, announce that they are. You can get in. It's it's three hundred miles from Sert in Libya to Crete which means you're already in Europe, right. and you come as a refugee, very hard to prove. Uh, that's why the, the importance of intelligence, I think the United States is, is on top of it. New York, certainly, people are concerned and watching it. Right. But we're a big country, too, and we have a southern border, which is, is uh, from Mexico, for instance, which we know has been vulnerable. Uh, I think we, we are working, and the Homeland Security and others are, are very much aware of it. Uh, we have a Canadian border. Yeah. That could, can be penetrated, and if an Ameri- if somebody has an American passport and he comes back, um, I don't know that you can you, you really can uh, uh, be sure that that we go and and we have Americans there, but only in the hundreds in Europe. You're talking about 
in the thousands and many of the governments of Europe not determined to do stuff, unwilling to take the necessary steps, won't even identify terrorism uh, as terrorism. And, and just on your earlier question about uh, uh, the Russian-Israel relationship, Israel has made clear there's no substitute for the US, special U.S.-Israel relationship. Moscow is not going to replace the United States. Israel should have good relations with as many countries as possible, but the fundamental relationship is still the, the U.S.-Israel relation. And you saw Ash Carter, the Defense Secretary, meeting with uh, uh, Lieberman and assuring the Israel's qualitative military edge again this week. So that still remains the core relationship. Yeah, I get, I get that. But I always, you know, for those of us who never understood from an American perspective why they would allow uh, the EU, the Quartet, you know, to, to be involved in any of this, you know. Well, the U.S. has opposed the French initiative and, and has worked hard to, to try it and, and said they wouldn't even participate. It's still not clear what they will do at the U.N. General Assembly session. There will be a meeting, we think, of the Quartet, because th- this was the direction, was to internationalize every conflict, and that is part of the diminution of the role of the United States. And Europeans, frankly, after they saw that the red lines didn't hold in Syria and some of the other things, I mean, they have many excuses for what they, they don't do. And in the meantime, Russia just steps into every void. They don't do much. They don't give the kind of money and aid that the United States does, and, and, and their goals are, are very political and strategic. In Syria, they want a lot to keep a base. We saw them flying out of, of Iran, you know, out of the Hamadan base. And then there was a big reaction because they went public with it. And the Iranians, the Iranian people don't like the Russians because Russia invaded in 1945, uh, 1944. They invaded Iran together from the north and England from the south. And in, when the war ended, the British pulled out. The Russians didn't. And it took the first Security Council resolution in 1946, the very first, was against Russia for its occupation of Iran. And the, there's a lot of resentment historically also between Russia and Iran. So when they made this announcement and Russian planes, in violation of the Iranian constitution, by the way, were based at this thing. And then they said they pulled out, and then they said, no, they didn't pull out. They never pulled out. And I know from Iranian sources that they have been working, the Russians, for a year in this base, building the infrastructure, because they're there to stay. And they are increasing their footprint everywhere. To support who? To support the current Iranian government? To support, to support who? their interests. But and their interest is, number one, that they expand their, their footprint in the region in Syria to have the Latakia Air Force Base to assure that they will be able, to, you know, which is their further south, further south uh, uh, naval base. They have an Air Force Base. You know that they've just signed an agreement to build a railroad going from the heart of Russia to, through uh, Azerbaijan to Iran to the warm water ports. This is some, these, these are goals that are historic goals of Russia, and they've, what they've called the North-South Corridor. Now, we know that the Azeris don't like the Russians and don't like the Iranians. But, they're, again, it's part of the broader picture that we discussed before. I know people may glaze over, but believe me, all these things will have important consequences. It's a reshaping that's taking place. And, again, with a country, Russia itself today is not a superpower. But they're acting as it, and they're, they're translating it. And you see everybody, you know, running to, to, to talk to them. And part of it, yeah, it is a slap at the U.S. or a message to the U.S. But the bottom line is they all want relationship with the United States. But I, I, the Iranians on a diplomatic level don't try to deal with this and don't try to uh, you know, get rid of the Russians um, and, the, and the, uh, you know, the, the subsequent building of bases like this in Iran. I mean... It just it, it, for those the Iranian th- government 
gave them permission, obviously, to do this. Uh, they want the weapons. They want to buy weapons. You know, they want to buy the Sukhoi. They got the S-300, which they're beginning to deploy at Fordo, which is supposed to be in, inactive for 15 years. So why do they need to deploy this uh, very sophisticated uh, anti-missile system there? It's a good question that you ask. And, <laughs> uh, and I think Iran right now is focused uh, on many fronts, one is keeping Assad in power. One is, uh, you know, sustaining their terrorist uh, allegiance in the network, Hamas, Hezbollah, et cetera, et cetera. But also, there is an escalating situation, which again gets little attention, between Saudi Arabia as the leader of the Sunnis and and Iran. And they use the Hajj, which began t- begins today, you know, the annual pilgrimage mm-hmm. to to Mecca and Medina, but to to um, uh, where they uh, go to the Kaaba and they walk around. And remember last year there was a tragedy and right. many people died, including hundreds of Iranians. Stampede. Going to international court. But they're using it now as a weapon against Iran. And look at the language that the, the uh, Supreme Leader said, that the Saudis are incompetent, they're, they're ineptitude, they uh, uh, accuse them of all sorts of wicked things. And they answered and said, and the chief imam said uh, from Saudi Arabia that they're not Muslims, that the Iranians aren't really Muslims, which is, of course, a tremendous insult. And they are escalating the violence, and they're operating through proxies. They accuse each other of being behind the wars in Yemen, in Iraq, in, in Syria. And the truth is that all of this is true. They both have involvements in, in these places, but not playing the same role. Iran is trying to undermine those regimes, and, and it is saying it. And the... Uh, Russia downplays the Iranian nuclear thing. They defend uh, some of these countries, and and some of the actions uh, of Iran certainly have not imposed the sanctions that you know they're selling them the Sukhoi uh, fighter jets, et cetera, because they make money uh, out of all of this. PA elections are they still scheduled? They are not. They've been canceled. And, and uh, as uh, before, we were, uh, during our last appearance, I said that it wouldn't take place. Because uh, Abbas can't afford it, and, and, Ham, and um, uh, Hamas doesn't can't afford it, because neither wants to be put to the test. And uh, the, it's a court ruling. Uh, they say because of the competing lists, because five Fatah lists were knocked out, uh, but also because they started seeing the handwriting that major cities might have come voted for in the West Bank, might have voted for for Hamas, and the the. Um, uh, both sides are not interested in a real democratic process, so it was inevitable that this would be uh, postponed, as it has been for years. It's seven years since the last election, so he's in his eleventh year of a four-year term, and the <laughs> and the um, and the people suffered. You know, again, I don't know that there was that much interest in having an election because they don't have another leader. There's no body contesting. Abbas right now, right. Uh, who, who's standing in the wings are various individuals who put themselves forward, but no, I would say, natural successor. Nobody's standing there. So um, I don't know that it, it, people, are, the Palestinians are very frustrated. And uh, the West, instead of pushing all the time for pressing Israel, and they, they recognize, they have to recognize, that Israel could sit and offer to negotiate, but they have nobody on the other side of the table. And you see from this, that it's not going to be anybody on the other side of the table now. Uh, usually, today's what, September the 9th, usually around this time we're already 
uh, discussing the um, uh, United Nations and the General Assembly meeting and everything that's going to be happening toward the end of September. Uh, maybe last year wasn't as active as prior years. You know, when, once once you lose Ahmadinejad as a personality, all of a sudden things die down. But but is is it in fact? Uh, less dramatic and uh, more anticlimactic now, and there will be much less discussion over the next couple of weeks uh, in terms of what's going to be happening at the U.N. this month? No, we're going to be discussing it, and, be, and one of the reasons it's less is that it's overshadowed by the U.S. election, which it sucks up much of, uh, of the energy, and many of the issues we discuss are not getting the proper attention because everybody's focused on he and she said and who said what and who did uh, what to whom or looked the wrong way. Uh, and rather than looking at the issues, and, and there are many that are emerging, for one thing, we have election of a secretary general. We have met with most of the candidates now, um, and it's it's certainly undetermined. There will be another straw vote, but the real votes won't take place till October, because the Russians are going to control the process. The Russians want the vote then because they they will be in the presidency of the Security Council where the discussion takes place. So that gives them a lot of leverage. And the United States and Russia determine who the next person will be, right. though each of the five permanent members has a, a veto over the choice. Uh, others can vote against it, and you saw that no one has a perfect record of 15 to 0. Some have two opposition, three opposition, some have eight opposition. Uh, but when it comes to the, the next stage is they vote, and you know who's a permanent member, and it's a colored ballot where they say absolutely not. That's a death knell for candidates. So they were hoping that of the 13, some would drop out. Two did during the summer, but the rest, nobody dropped out uh, now. So we will see a lot more. And It's like the Republican primary. you got a lot of people up there. You have a lot, and <laughs> you'll be hearing from a lot of them. But the, the, um, uh, the process is really very internal. But the issues themselves at the General Assembly could be very serious, and as we know, maybe later on at the U.N. could become the venue for some... Uh, I'm sure the Palestinians are going to make a move. Maybe it'll be a settlement resolution. Maybe right. it'll be something else. Likely they won't do it till after the U.S. election. Then I think we may see more action yeah, you've on said, the uh, issue. You've said pay attention to September, but possibly pay more attention toward the very end of the calendar year. To November, right. You know, that may be when uh, when things really heat up. I mean, I know you don't... I, we, we all know, I think, at this point, any regular listener, what your position is on what's happening vis-a-vis the uh, next occupant of the White House. Uh, but I saw something this week. I saw someone say that um, that for the first time ever, they will not exercise their right to vote. That's how disenchanted they are with this current election process, which I think anybody who views it can understand that position. But, but Malcolm, for a moment, uh, you know, w- what would our grandparents and great-grandparents say when we are in a situation where we can vote and we are making a decision not to. Wouldn't you still tell people in our community to still get out there and make some type of decisive move on November the 8th? First of all, you have all of Congress up for re-election and the Senate, which is of extreme importance to us. And it's very important that people go and vote. Vote your conscience, vote whatever you feel, study the issues, the candidates, and then make a decision. But the absence, and especially in Jewish communities, because politicians may not be able to do a lot, but they can all count, and they know who votes and who doesn't vote. Mm-hmm. So it's really imperative that not, even if you don't like the candidates, you can write in, you can do exercise a protest vote of some kind. It's a waste. If you feel strongly about a candidate, you should uh, express that in, in a vote. But the next president is going to face immediate and critical 
developments as this president did. But we've talked about some of the things. Look, look at the harassment by Iran of American ships and American uh, in the destroyer and uh, the um, uh, what he calls the aircraft carrier group. And seven times in a single day, they harass. They come within a hundred yards or of of and and run directly in front of these uh, uh, high speed attack boats. And and what is the message? What is the message if we don't take uh, some sort of action? You see, North Korea's uh, fifth uh, nuclear test, plus the ballistic missile test, plus Iran's ballistic missile test. All these are violations of Security Council resolutions. All of these will end up meaning that they will be way ahead in the development of, of a nuclear weapons capacity, regardless of when, you know, whether it's in 10 years or 9 years, none of these things, these are very short periods of time in, in the course of, um, of history. And we learned that Venezuela and Iran are, are jointly manufacturing cruise missiles, and that it, it goes back to a program, I think, in 2009, where they started uh, developing when Iran was under sanctions. Mm. Um, so... And you have the creation of this new Shiite liberation army by by the IRGC, the Iran Revolutionary Guard, which they say they're going to use against Israel, they're going to use against Saudi Arabia, and uh, it's and part of the escalation of tension that I, I mentioned before. So the next president is not going to have a lot of leeway. The Congress is not going to have a lot of leeway. Right now we need Congress to act on the Iran Sanctions Act. So people should reach out to their members of Congress speak about it, demand that they act. We want BDS legislation. We want other things to take place. And while, again, why I say what I do about the presidential election, sucking all of the attention, and why I won't discuss it, is because we've got to get people to focus back on where they can really make a difference. Right. Congressional races, and most importantly, the issues. North Korean nuclear testing is against the U.N. resolution, right? Of course. Right, yeah. Just, just and they get away with it, so we have sanctions against them. They don't care about And you know what's funny about that, by the way? You know, we always complain that there's no press attention, no media attention for these types of activities. Not only do they get media attention, they don't get negative media attention for it. That's well, they do, but, but you know, everybody says, oh, it's North Korea. So, right. You know, but, but first of all, there is a synergy, there is an interrelationship between Iran and North Korea. The missiles you see in Iran are based on the Nodong from North Korea. We know that that Iranians were present at a lot of the previous tests. So I believe that there is a close interrelationship, and there are people who have studied and documented some of this to, to, between Iran and North Korea. And when North Korea tests a missile, it's Iran. When Iran tests a missile, the North Koreans benefit from the information as well. And, and the same in the nuclear. And which neighbors of North Korea um, uh, most fear? Well, China's already said that they're going to file a complaint. To, but first of all, it's South Korea, which is most scared. Japan, apoplectic about Korea. Um, anybody in the region uh, will be, but those are the main countries that are, are up, for whom it's, a, it's a, a great concern. All right, one week from today, we continue with the weekly update. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a wonderful Shabbos. Have a good Shabbos, and we should, everybody should note, as we try to point out, when you sit with your kids, tell them about the discovery that after years of sifting through the debris that you know the Palestinians destroyed on the top of Harabites on the Temple Mount, they have found the marbles and put them together in a painstaking way that we can see the actual floor of the second base Hamikdash, the actual the tiles put together in a, an incredibly complex geometric design. And if you didn't do it, just go back, Google it. You will see the pictures 
of the tiles that you can see what was in the courtyard of the of the temple, the base of Mikdash, two thousand years ago. We have it. They can see it. And if that's not something that should counteract all of the negative world things to say that God is sending us a message that this is such an amazing discovery every day now because it's coming to the end of the summer digging season. So many things are coming up. A shul that's 1,500 years old, 1,600 years old. It's amazing. And this in particular should have everybody abuzz. That should be what everybody talk about this Shabbos. No, no okay. question about it. Uh, print out that article, folks, and, re- and, re- and read, it at the, read it at the Shabbos table. Thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos.